Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Boy, it's really, really significant stuff. As I was working this message out, I, I was reminded of a story that happened about three years after my family moved here to, the, to this uh, Hampton Roads area. And it, it struck us because we have served in previous occasions in churches that, that had uh, communities that were heavily influenced by Amish and Mennonite uh, families. And uh, in October of 2006, a man named Charles Roberts walked into a little one-room schoolhouse in an Amish community in Pennsylvania and shot 10 young schoolgirls, killing five of them. And then he turned the gun on himself. Mere hours after the attack, a group of that Amish community made their way to his house, to the house of the attacker, to speak to the fresh widow, but not to picket, not to cause a stir, not to attack her in any way, but to voice their concern for the couple's three young children just after they lost five of theirs. The Amish community also donated money to help the family because of the financial hardship of losing their primary breadwinner. On the day of that man's funeral, Several Amish families, some of whom had buried their daughters the day before, attended his funeral at the Little United Methodist Church. It's estimated, in fact, that half of the attendees at the funeral were from the Amish community. That's 16, 17 years ago, a long time ago. And I still have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I remember that being in the news. I remember the reaction of the Amish community and how it was just stunning to everyone around them. How could they do that? How could they, having just been the subject of an unprovoked attack, I mean, if there's any group of people in the world that doesn't make people mad, it's the Amish and Mennonite community. They are the kindest, sweetest people I've ever met. He just showed up and started shooting. And their response was not one of anger. 
Their response was not one of hatred or retaliation. Their response was one of mercy. How can we help this family? When I think blessed are the merciful, I think of people like that. But I want to talk about this from the vantage point that, simply put, mercy begets mercy. So if you're following your notes, that's the first thing you'll come up with. And I want to say that mercy starts with God. So I don't want to I don't want to cause any confusion. So this seventh verse says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I think this is talking about mercy from God, and I'll explain why in a minute. But please don't make the mistake of thinking, if we're merciful, then God will be merciful to us. In, this, in the scriptures, mercy begins with God. It's a word in the Old Testament that you sometimes see translated loving kindness or mercy. Uh, there are a variety of ways that it's translated in the Old Testament, but Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, is some of the ways that we will recognize it, because this is when Moses went back up the second time to the mountain, and he wanted to hear from God, and God, God said, I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to proclaim my name to you. And this is what he said. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah, a God merciful and gracious. The first two things that he describes himself as is his mercy and his grace, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the kind of God we serve. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is holy. But he begins his self-disclosure with, I am merciful and gracious. I did a little thinking about that. This is talking about God's covenant love. So, this was to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, largely, he defined himself with his people. I have a people. They are my people, and I am in a covenant of loyal love with them. And as we move into the New Testament, we come to understand that God's people is a much larger group than just the children of Israel, but includes all who, through faith in Jesus, will trust in him and be rightly related to God, we become part of God's people, and he is fiercely loyal to us, not just as a group, but as individual people. I read this, though, which I really have liked. God's faithfulness to a graciously established relationship with Israel or an individual, despite human unworthiness and defection, readily passes over into mercy. He's faithful because he's merciful. The steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of us is the essential meaning of that Hebrew word. I love that definition. The steady, persistent refusal to wash his hands of us. 
See, if we've trusted Jesus, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, if we've responded rightly to the gospel and we're related to God, he sees us as righteous. But you know, right, I, that's, this isn't going to be a revelation to you that you still do some stuff that makes you unworthy, right? You're worthy because you're in Christ, not because you all of a sudden got good. God persistently refuses to wash his hands of me. I, I think of, of uh, the New Testament situation with Pilate and Jesus, right? Pilate tried to let Jesus free and this and that and the other thing, and eventually he had somebody bring a bowl of water and he dipped his and said, I'm washing my hands of this. What a coward, right? But he just wanted nothing to do with it anymore. God never does that when he is in a covenant relationship with you. He never washes his hands of you. He is relentlessly, persistently refusing to do that, in fact. That's an incredible definition. And of course, it's not just grounded in sentiment, right? God, God is not sentimental in the sense that he looks down at me and says, oh, you know, that's, that's how I am with my dogs. Like, I love my dogs. I, I love my dogs. Don't come and mess with my dogs. They come and they look at me. I know exactly what they're thinking, right? That's sentimentality, right? It's not like we sit down and have, I mean, we kind of have conversations, but they're pretty one-sided, right? I talk to them, they look at me, and I assume what they're saying back, but it's, it's sentimental. God does not stay in his relationship with me because he's sentimental. He stays in a relationship with me because of Christ's atoning blood, which paid the penalty for and cleanses from sin those who believe in him. The good news of the gospel, I read this this week also, is that Christ paid for sin in order that God might be merciful to sinners. So, of course, this starts with the gospel, right? If I'm going to be in a relationship with God where I enjoy the mercy of God, I have to come through Jesus. Jesus came here, lived a perfect life, died paying the penalty for sin, was buried, and literally came back to life on the third day. That's what we call the gospel. For me to get into this kind of relationship where he relentlessly pursues me, I love that song we sang, right? Your goodness is running after me. I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails. All my life, I've been held in your hands. If I want that kind of relationship with God, I come through Jesus. So I repent of my sin. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, a sinner and I'm separated from God. I believe in the gospel that I just talked about, and I receive Christ. And when I do that, I come into a covenant relationship with God that he will not break under any condition. He will keep after me for the remainder of my natural life and then take me to heaven someday. That's the mercy of God. It has nothing to do with what I deserve. It has nothing to do with what I deserve to this day. I'm sure it's not true for any of you, but there are people that I interact with that, that like are a little surprised that pastors still sin. You're a pastor. Yeah, I know, but I'm a human first, right? Because we still do things. Here's, here's the interesting piece, and this will come around to the pure in heart, right? 
the longer we're walking with Jesus, what happens to our sin? It becomes less visible, which is way more dangerous. But we'll come back to that. Mercy starts with God, but mercy issues in forgiveness. Remember the story of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? We're going to read a couple verses toward the end of that story in a minute. But it, it is a parable told by Jesus of a man to whom someone owed a boatload of money, an unpayable sum, depending on who you read and who's putting the number of uh, talents together as 10,000 talents, however you define a talent, you know, could be as much as 150,000 years of salary. Wouldn't matter if it was 150 years, right? It's an unpayable sum. And the the king says to the guy, you owe me all this money. You have made really bad choices and bad decisions, and look what has happened to you now. And now you're going to prison, your wife is going to prison, and your children are going to prison to pay off your debt. Your whole family is suffering because of your bad choices. And the guy falls on his knees and pleads with the king, please, 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 I promise I'll pay it all back. Seriously? But the king looks at him, has mercy on him, and says, you know what, I'm going to forgive you that debt. Amazing. That guy, servant number one, goes finds servant number two, who owes him about four months' wages, which is still a lot, and he grabs him by the throat and says, you got to pay me back, and he's going to choke him out if fellow servants don't intervene. They go back to the master, the king, and they say, uh, do you know what just happened? So the master calls in servant number one and says this, summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Mercy issues in forgiveness. When we've experienced the mercy of God, we tend to become people who are merciful. We tend to become people who want to pursue forgiveness. It also results in compassion. Jesus is a supreme example of this. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35 talks about Jesus as he's just kind of going through his day. And it it says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. He's been going through all these cities. Well, let me just read the whole thing. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, and see, we usually start preaching. When we're preaching this text, we start with this verse. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest. <laughs> That's our missions, our evangelism challenge, right? But it's in the context of compassion. Jesus is saying, 
people are hurting all around. Pray that God will send laborers into the harvest to care for the hurting. It's practical. It's compassionate. You want a, a three-word uh, way to remember what this is talking about? Ears, cheers, and tears. You listen, you encourage people, and you cry with them if you need to. Ears, cheers, and tears. That's the compassion that ought to result from this kind of mercy. Fourthly, mercy is cyclical. It runs in a cycle. Are the merciful always shown mercy by men? Not always, right? In fact, sometimes they're taken advantage of. Sometimes they are abused. While we are, said one writer, while we are ever to look back on the mercy which we show, which we received as the source and motive of the mercy we show, we also look forward to the mercy which we yet need and which we are assured we will receive as a new provocation to its abundant exercise. That's a really, really eloquent way of saying we were shown mercy, so we show mercy knowing that we're going to need mercy so we can show mercy again. It's an ongoing cycle. We receive mercy from God. We show mercy to others. We're going to continue to need mercy from God, and we're going to continue to show mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful. They receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure hearts see God. He's talking about clean hearts, which has at least two things in mind. One is sincerity. Undivided devotion. It's sometimes used of metals that are refined to be pure metal, silver or whatever metal it is that's refined so it can be pure. Perhaps it could be said, blessed are those with unmixed motives. It's calling us to self-examination. David Augsburger says, perhaps we need to examine our motives in church life, in religious exercises, more than in any other area. How easy it is, he says, to cover selfish ambition with the cloak of religious service. So another three, three thing, right? In religious service, there are three temptations to shine, look at me, to whine, because you're not looking at me, or I don't like what somebody else is doing, or to recline. I'm not going to do anything. Really tempting to do one of those three, to shine, whine, or recline. But someone with a pure heart refuses to do that because of my single-minded devotion to God. Secondly, it means no hypocrisy. It means I'm as clean on the inside as I appear to be on the outside. Remember this 
account where Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. It's really easy to be like that, right? So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the purpose of 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about daily living. That's talking about keeping the channels clean. That's talking about acknowledging when I've come short again, oh God, forgive me for what I'm doing. I know I'm claiming the blood of Jesus. It's not a cleansing that results in a relationship with God. It's a cleansing that results in ongoing fellowship. We get cleaner on the outside the longer we follow Jesus. I mentioned this earlier, right? We look better and better to everybody else on the outside. That's a great danger. Because if we're not honest with ourselves, we can allow things on the inside that are impure to some degree or another. We can allow an uncleanness on the inside that will just fester and cause all sorts of trouble. And it's not just what people see, but what is true about me that defines whether I'm pure in heart. For Jesus, he said, you've heard it said that you should not kill, but I say, don't hate your brother. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Jesus was driving at this very concept that it's purity in our heart that is what's most important. It's what he said to the Pharisees. You can look good all you want, but if you aren't good on the inside, it's just, it's just a show. Blessed are the pure in heart. So I know we struggle with a balance here, right? Because if I have trusted in Jesus, if I've repented of my sin and believed in the gospel and received Christ, when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ covering me. But I still have to fight for purity in my heart. I, I'm thinking maybe some of you do too. It's so desperately important. So what does it mean to say the pure in heart will see God? Well, we can't look on God. We know that. God himself said that. Moses was in the middle of asking God to make sure he would go with them. Please make sure you come with us as we entertain. And if you're not going to come with us, please don't even send us. Right? And then he said, and God said, don't worry, 
I have found favor in your sight. And Moses' reaction to that was, then you have to go with us because isn't this what makes us distinct from everybody else, that you are with us? Moses' response was, how will I know I've found favor in my sight? Oh, let me see your glory. And God says, nope, you cannot see me and live. So this is a serious thing, right? How do we see God? The theological term is eschatologically, as far as end times go, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's the importance of the gospel. I repent of my sin. I believe that Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, paid for my sin, was buried, and came back to life again on the third day. And I repent of my sin, and I receive Christ. That's the gospel. That means someday I will see God. I will, in fact, be in his presence, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But practically, how do I see God? I think it has to do with intimate knowledge of God, fellowship with God. That's reserved for the pure in heart. Purity of heart, said John MacArthur, cleanses the eyes of the soul so that God becomes visible to them. Seeing God in our daily activity and experience, seeing his presence there, those things are for those who are pure in heart. So let me take a couple of minutes to parse those out as I wrap this up and give you a couple of thoughts to take home. You've been shown mercy by God. If you're a follower of Jesus, he has shown you his mercy. And honestly, if you're not, you're still alive. So God has shown you his mercy because you are separated from him by sin and he has no obligation to keep you here. The question is, are you showing mercy to others? How are you doing that? Who is it that you need to forgive? If mercy in the scriptures issues in forgiveness, who is there in your life that you need to forgive? Do you need to initiate a conversation this afternoon or sometime this week with someone that you are at odds with and you need to work something out? That's never an easy conversation, but mercy issues in forgiveness. It's going to affect how much I want to be involved in forgiving. I know it's a, it's a deep, penetrating process. It's not going to happen with a phone call this afternoon, but it may start with that. Who do you need to forgive? Who can you show compassion toward? How can you be engaged in compassion? I, and we can certainly do this throughout our daily lives. We have opportunity to do that. We have ministries at Coastal that that's really the large focus of what they do. Some of our folks here are involved in our ministry with our food pantry. Hundreds, hundreds of families every month get food to put on the table for a week for their family. And we go to them. We have people who are there who go around from car to car. Hey, is there anything I can pray with you about? Sometimes that ends up in a gospel conversation and somebody gets to share Christ. For some people, we're just being compassionate, caring for our community. 
Who is it that you can show compassion toward? The other one, the other question is, are you pure? How's the inside of your cup and plate look? Especially on Sundays, right? We come and we look good. We, we, we're smiling and we're happy and we give a hug and those are all great things. But you'd never know with some of us that we've been battling with temptation this week. Maybe our anger has gotten the best of us and we've just been out of control. Or maybe we've been dealing with lust this past week or whatever. There, What's going on on the inside? So, so my question is, are you pure? Are you putting on a show or is your heart as clean as your demeanor? If, if you were to be brutally honest with yourself, are you as as nice as people think you are. How about sexual sin? Man, if there is one particular sin that is a scourge in the culture we live in, it is this. Now listen, there are lots of them. Greed. You have a great opportunity to exercise your greed by driving over to the new, what is it down there? You can go bet your life away, gamble your life away, that's all about greed and taking, let me, let me find the easy way to make a boatload of money. Our counseling load, as it relates to gambling addiction at Coastal, is going to, is going to increase in the years to come because of that. Maybe you're struggling with sexual sin, maybe with pornography, maybe with lust, maybe you're involved in a relationship that hasn't gone too far south to rescue yet, but you know you shouldn't be in it. I don't know. The pure in heart see God. I wonder how many of us need to do some serious business with God when we get home today to get him to clean our heart again. What did David say? David was a man after God's own heart. That was a description of him. And he said, oh, God, I've sinned against you. Clean my heart, purge my heart. Because he had done what he shouldn't have done. The great news of the gospel is there is forgiveness. What do you need to do? I know that's a heavy sermon today. But what do we need to do to make sure that we can really see God at work? We can see him in our lives. We can see him in day-to-day -day activities. We can see him in the relationships we're involved in. What do I need to do to do that? I need to be pure in my heart. There will be folks up here this morning that will be ready to pray with you if you would like to just come and talk and pray to somebody. They're not your priest. You don't have to come and treat it like a confessional, but there may be something you're battling with and you just want some prayer support. Sometimes being able to come to talk to somebody and pray about it before you get out the door is a really helpful thing. Feel free, by all means, come and do that. If you need to talk about your relationship with Christ and you don't know for sure that you're even rightly related to God in the first place, you know, there's something to me on this side of that equation that is very scary about not knowing that God's goodness is running after me. That, in fact, I'm running from it and God's not chasing 
His goodness is there. He is always available. If, if he wants you, he will come and get you. But please don't make it a race. Turn around. That's what repentance is, right? Turning around. Do a 180 and come back and walk toward God and seek his forgiveness. We'd love to talk to you about that, okay? Listen, I'm going to pray. The team's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song as we go. But, uh, man, I'm so grateful that Jesus has made it clear. Here's how you walk with God most faithfully. Here's the stuff that'll help, right? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the hard passages of Scripture, too, Lord. It's not easy to have to look in the mirror and uh, see ourselves and see our our weaknesses and our tendencies we understand our tendency is to wander like the song says prone to wander lord i feel it so lord we come back today we come back to you we come back in our hearts lord i pray for for those who've never trusted in jesus those who are struggling with some temptation that they just can't seem to get a a handle on Lord, I pray for those who have walked with you a long time, but perhaps our hearts have some corner of it that is not as clean as we'd like people to think. Lord, challenge us today. Challenge our hearts. Bring us to our knees before you. Help us, Lord, to, to walk in, in honesty and transparency and faithfulness with you so that you'll be glorified in our lives. That's what we want. Oh, God, I pray in the name of Jesus.